if I would fill in for him. I said, sure. And I think I'd like to just take up wherever you are in, in the uh, Gospel of Luke, and I'll just teach that passage. And he got back to me, and he said, well, I'm going to finish up, and Luke 16 will be your section. And I told him, I said, you're kidding me, right? You couldn't have stopped and given me the prodigal son, good passage to preach, repentance, you know, love of God and stuff. Chapter 16 deals with stewardship, money, religious hypocrisy, heaven and hell. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things in this passage of Scripture. But before we get there, I just want to make a couple of comments on uh, the church's initiative into the story. And this is unsolicited. Um, this is an unpaid advertisement. Um, but I'm really excited that the, the church is going to do this because the Word of God is the foundational aspect of our lives as Christians. And you can say our relationship with Christ is, and that's certainly true, but you don't come into relationship with Christ outside of the Word of God. We've got to have the Word of God in our lives, and the Word of God is, is the most amazing book that the world has ever known. If you've done any studies in apologetics regarding the Word of God, you'll find that it is an extraordinary book. It's not just a book, it is the book. Over 2,000 predictive prophecies in the Bible, most all of which have been fulfilled in very specific ways. 300 prophecies regarding the Messiah alone. And for those of you who are old enough, um, you might remember a book from back in the 70s called Evidence Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Anybody ever? Yeah. Well, there was a, pass a part of that book that Josh McDowell put in there <coughs> from a, another book called Science Speaks by a man named Dr. Peter Stoner. And Peter Stoner had done a statistical study of what it would have been like for any person to fulfill the prophecies related to the Messiah. And of course, as I said, over 300. He did a study that showed for a man to have been able to fulfill eight and in the book, it gives the eight specific prophecies of um, the coming of the Messiah, just eight, mind you, that it would have been 10 to the 17th power in odds. For someone to fulfill 16 of these prophecies, 10 to the 45th power. And that's sort of like taking um, silver dollars, covering the entire state of Texas with silver dollars up to a foot and a half and picking one out the first time. That's what 10 to the 45th power. But that's only 16 prophecies. Over 300. Jesus, if you do a, a detailed study, you'll find, fulfills them all. And so it's an extraordinary book. Think about trying to replicate this book. Let's say that today you want to start out and you're going to replicate what the Bible did. Well, here's what you have to do. You have to write your book, but then subsequent to your book, after you die, there have to be 65 more books written by 39 other authors who will span a time of over 1,500 years, who will come from different cultures, different countries. All of them will write concerning a single theme, the coming of a messianic character, from a nation that actually exists or actually will be created after you begin writing 
And this man will actually live in history, be born, die, and rise again from the dead as predicted throughout all of these books. Anybody in here up to that task? It's an amazing book, and I'm so glad again that we're doing the study uh, of it through the story. So Luke chapter 16, as I said, an interesting passage of Scripture. Uh, There's a lot of stuff in this, but the focus really of chapter 16 and the tact that I'm going to take with this passage, we're going to try to get through the entire chapter, uh, is the issue of stewardship. And really understand that the context of chapter 16 really goes back into Luke chapter 14. We have chapters and verses in our Bibles today, but when these uh, books were written, that was not the case. They were written on scrolls, they were written on parchments, and they were just extended narratives. They weren't broken down into chapters and verses until beginning in the 13th century and concluding somewhere around the 16th century. That's when we got our chapter and verse Bible. But for most of history, the scriptures have been scrolls and, narr- or scrolls and parchments. So as a reader, we look in chapter 14 and we see Jesus talking about discipleship and leaving all to follow Christ and how important our devotion to the task is and how all-consuming it becomes. And in chapter 16, it's a continuation really of that same theme, but Jesus then centers this concept of discipleship, of what it means to follow him around the concept of money. Now, money is one thing we all have in common. We may be different genders, we may be different heights, we may be different ages, but all of us have had to deal with the issue of money in one fashion or another. It's a controversial topic. A lot of people will tell you that money is sort of a moral neutral. I don't believe that. I don't think the scriptures support that. If you read what the scriptures say about money, it's called filthy lucre. In the passage that we're going to go through today, it's called unrighteous mammon. And mammon, for those of you who, who know, uh, or don't know rather, uh, was the name of a Canaanite deity, a Canaanite deity over the issue of wealth. And it came to be referred uh, in Jewish culture to money. So money is really not a, a moral neutral. Money is something that tests each one of our hearts. And we'll see that here in this passage. This uh, first part of the passage is called the parable of the unjust steward. And it's interesting, if you go through uh, all of the parables and study them, you'll see that a third of all the parables, parables deal with money or economic issues. And if you read through the Gospels and do a careful study, you'll find that one-sixth of the Gospels address financial matters. So it's a big issue. Jesus talked a lot about money. And so beginning in verse 1, it says, And he, that would be Jesus, also said to his disciples, so this is focused, again, to his disciples. There's a larger crowd around, but this is focused in, in message to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can do for you can no longer be my steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? 
for my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Now, people have had a struggle with this parable because the master who has been robbed actually commends his steward who has been robbing from him. But, but don't misunderstand. Parables are, are designed to illustrate typically a specific point. And the point of this parable is that in this steward's case, he was forward-thinking. He had put himself in a position where he was being put out of the stewardship and he had nowhere to go after that. He would either have to beg or he would have to dig and he couldn't do neither. So he was thinking forward. What is the outcome of my life going to be now? And in order to prepare for what was lying ahead, the steward arranged with some of his master's creditors to get them on his good side. He gave them a good deal. Perhaps he cut out his own take of what was typically brought in. We don't know for sure, but the fact is that he was thinking forward. He was dealing shrewdly. He was planning ahead. And that's the point of the parable. There in verse 8, it says, The sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And the focus of that statement is this. People will spend an inordinate amount of time and energy to plan for their financial future. There are whole industries dealing with financial solvency and planning. But Christians, the sons of light, here Jesus is making the point, don't invest that same kind of passion, that same kind of resource into planning for their spiritual future. And I heard it said once, and I believe it to be a true statement, that the best measure of a man's spirituality is not his prayer journal, but his checkbook. I mean, really, where do you spend your money? Where are you spending your time? Where is your investment? Now, in the story in chapter 15 about the prodigal, we see the story of the prodigal son who uh, wasted his life. He got his inheritance and he just wasted it. Ended up in a pig's trough. And we see the counterpoint of his older brother who missed out on his life. He had everything in his access. He could have made a wonderful life for himself, but because of his, his pride and his jealousy, he missed out on everything. Both of those are wrong approaches to our lives as Christians. The proper approach for us as Christians is as stewards. Recognizing that all we have, all that we possess, whether it's financial, material, uh, gifting, um, good looks for some of you, um, it's a gift of God. It's the possession of God. It's not ours. 
Andrew Carnegie, uh, after he died, the press were speaking to his son, and they asked his son, how much did your father leave behind? And Andrew Carnegie's son responded, everything. There was nothing that he took with him. Did it really matter what the amount was? Because everything he had, he left behind. He was not the owner of it. He was a steward of it. And that's the message here. We are stewards of what we possess. What are we going to do with those things that we have been given, whether financial, material, or otherwise? Are we going to spend it on consumption as the prodigal? Are we going to hoard it and, and not utilize it well as the older brother? Or are we going to invest it in God's kingdom? Let's move ahead. Verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, or another translation of that would be when it fails, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. So here's the first lesson that Jesus wants us to know. That unrighteous mammon can be redeemed. We can take the money, the material possessions that we have been given, and we can utilize that, invest it in God's kingdom. Making friends for ourselves, Jesus says, into everlasting habitations. Essentially, we, each one of us, have an account. In Philippians chapter 4, you'll read where Paul is commending the Philippians for their gift unto him. Paul was in need. The Philippians uh, had arranged a gift and had sent it to Paul, even though it was a time of difficulty for the, the Christians there in Philippi. And Paul writes back to them, and in verse 17, Paul says, it's not that I seek the gift, because I've learned to live in all circumstances. I've learned to live with and I've learned to live without. But it's that I seek the benefit that accrues to your account. So each one of us here, every one of you sitting in a pew this morning has an account in your name in heaven that you can invest into in this life or choose not to. Paul was commending the Philippians because they had invested in their heavenly account. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here in verse 9. He's saying, use your unrighteous mammon, invest it in the kingdom of God, and that ultimately there will be an everlasting, eternal benefit that you reap from that. Jesus said the same thing in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 6. He said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust corrupts and moths come in and destroy, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven that cannot be destroyed or taken away or robbed from you. Verse 10, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And in this case, what is least is unrighteous mammon, material possessions. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust true riches? That is, spiritual treasure, the reality of our position in Christ and the eternal blessing that it, that it holds. And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Again, the, 
the message here is that we are only stewards of everything that we possess. The true ownership that we come to have is our rewards that we receive in an eternal sense. And we, we read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It talks about some people who have not invested in the kingdom of God will, in the judgment, have their works as wood, hay, and stubble, burned up, consumed, no reward remaining. Other people who have filled their account while in this life, the judgment will reveal their works, their investment as gold, silver, and precious stones. And they will reap a reward. And that will truly be their possession because it cannot be taken away. It's an eternal possession. It's not something that you have to worry about the stock market taking away or a thief breaking in and robbing from you. That is the true possession. And if you're not faithful in financial matters, if you're not faithful with that basic unrighteous mammon that you have been given, then you certainly will not receive better things in the future, in the eternal habitations. And it's important that we keep our focus on the prize, that we are not temporal thinkers, that we're looking forward to where ultimately are we going to end up, just like the unrighteous steward, the unjust steward. He was looking forward to where he was going to end up, and he didn't want to beg, and he didn't want to dig. We have to look forward to the fact that someday, according to Romans 14, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and all of our works will be evaluated. Every one of them. And that is as true as this day, that each one of us will experience that. Verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So here's the third lesson, is you have to make a choice. You can't serve God and money. You can't be in desperate pursuit of financial gain and expect to have your focus actually be on God. Now, that is not to say that people who are well-to-do or even wealthy are unrighteous or sinners. There were many wealthy people throughout the scriptures. Abraham was one of them. He was very well-to-do. It's not money in and of itself but it is the love of money from which come all varieties of evil pursuits, Paul wrote to Timothy. Think about Abraham. After he chased after his uh, nephew Lot, when the five kings had taken Lot and his family and departed, Abraham and his servants went after them, they overcame them, and they took a great spoil from them. When Abraham, this very wealthy man, enhanced his wealth, it would appear, by all of the spoil. He's coming back, and he meets a character named Melchizedek, the prince of peace, king of Salem. And this Melchizedek, when he meets Abraham, Abraham recognizes him to be such a significant figure. Many people believe Melchizedek to be a theophany or an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Abraham takes a tenth of all of his spoil, and he gives it to Melchizedek as an offering. So that's fine, you say. Okay, Abraham's a wealthy man. He's giving a tenth. So what? Big deal. But interesting, right after that, Abraham then is confronted by the king of Sodom. And we all know what was occurring in Sodom. 
is not a righteous king. And the king of Sodom comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, just keep it all. It's all yours. And Abraham says, no way. I'm not going to allow anyone to say that you, the king of Sodom, made Abraham wealthy. So he gave that. There was this temptation after he had given a tenth to Melchizedek to keep it all for himself. King of Sodom being a type of uh, the world or a type even of Satan. So it's not that you're wealthy. It's your attitude towards wealth and your prioritization. And it's your forward thinking again. Where are you ultimately placing your, uh, your life? In money or in God? So verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things and they derided him. Literally, the term there could be translated, they uh, turned up their noses at him. They thought, what a foolish thing to say. Because the Pharisees believed and taught that wealth, money, was an indication of God's favor. That if you were wealthy, that meant God loved you, that God was approving of you. And if you were poor, just the opposite. So everything Jesus is saying here is countering their uh, theology. And so Jesus says to them, you're those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. All you have to do is read Revelation chapter 21 to understand what God thinks of gold and silver and precious stones. It's building material in the New Jerusalem. It's like sheetrock. But these Pharisees, they were takers. They were not givers. They were masters. They were not servants. And Jesus is pointing this out. They think that they are the guardians and the stewards of the law. And Jesus here, and of the kingdom of God, and Jesus here is pointing out nothing could be further from the truth. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. So all the prophets, the Old Testament, came till John. The John began to preach the coming of the Messiah. He was a voice in the wilderness proclaiming the way of the Lord. And since that time, then Jesus came onto the scene, began to preach the kingdom of, the, of God, and everybody was pressing in. But you know who wasn't pressing in? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the lawyers and the keepers of the Jewish temple. All the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the poor people, they, they were pressing in to get into the kingdom of God, but not these people who considered themselves the guardians and stewards of it. And so Jesus is pointing out how far they have missed the mark. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. That's like a dot of an I or a cross of a T. It's a very small mark in the Hebrew language. And Jesus is saying the law is going to be fulfilled, and we know from Matthew 5 that the law is fulfilled in Christ. And here Jesus points out to them their failure and their stewardship of the law. Their, point, their, their, their theology says it's wealth that God is concerned with. And here in verse 18, Jesus says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. And it seems odd, verse 18, because there's this chapter about stewardship and money, and then all of a sudden Jesus throws in this passage from the Old Testament about marriage and divorce. What does that have to do with it? Well, the point is that the Pharisees, again, considered themselves the guardians and stewards of the law and the kingdom of God. And Jesus is showing them how far they have missed the mark. At the time of Jesus, there were two primary uh, 
rabbinic schools related to divorce. There was the school of Shammai, and Shammai was a conservative, conservative uh, rabbi, and he taught that you could only divorce uh, someone because of adultery. But there were two other rabbis, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Akiba, both of whom taught that you could divorce for any reason. Actually, Hillel was um, liberal, but Akiba was far more liberal. Uh, the wife could look wrong at her husband, and that would be grounds for divorce. So in these two schools of thought regarding divorce, which do you suppose the Jewish culture and the Jewish leadership approved? It was the liberal. It, it was the ease of divorce. And so Jesus is pointing out, you guys are not stewards of the law. You're not guardians of the kingdom. You can't even keep the basics of the marital relationship straight. And you far missed the mark regarding financial status. So again, the point here being stewardship, the point being forward-looking towards where is my ultimate end. And Jesus puts the, the period at the end of the sentence in verses 19 through 31, and he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now this is not a fictional story. This is a story that is in truth. Jesus, of course, as God, has access to this kind of information. But also, if this were a fictional story, the impact on the, the Pharisees uh, who were deriding him would be minimal. This is a true story that Jesus is telling. He said, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. In other words, he had everything he needed and more. Every day wasn't just a good day. It was a luxurious day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. And this was a common behavior uh, in that time. They would take poor people, uh, impoverished people, and put them in, at key points, expecting that the well-to-do, the wealthy, would provide for them. Uh, there in Acts chapter 3, we read about the, the lame beggar at the gate beautiful that Peter and John came to and, and healed. He was in a very uh, key geographic position to beg alms. Same with this guy. He's laid at the rich man's gate so that he might receive some benefit from that rich man's wealth. Interesting to me that the rich man is not named, but Lazarus is. Lazarus means God is my help. So Lazarus was desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So not only is Lazarus not getting fed by this rich man, it was common in those times for, for the well-to-do to wipe their hands and their mouths with bread and then cast it off. And that was usually what the poor then would take and eat. Um, he wasn't even getting the, the bread from the rich man, but further, the dogs were uh, afflicting him. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And you can imagine the difference in their burials. The rich man, no doubt, had a very big funeral, a lot of pomp, a lot of circumstance, a lot of weeping and mourning. Lazarus, no doubt, his body was carried away to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, ben also known as Gehenna. It was a garbage heap where they would burn the garbage and the impoverished, they took their bodies there to burn as well. But the difference here is upon the... Uh, Lazarus's death, he's carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man was buried, and the rich man is in torments in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. 
Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Four times the rich man references the fact that he's tormented in this place called Hades. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And again, this, it's important to understand that this is not about the rich man going to Hades because he was wealthy and Lazarus going to Abraham's bosom because he was poor. It's all about faith. But the rich man's faith, or lack thereof, was demonstrated in the fact that he had no concern for his fellow man. You know, John wrote in his first epistle that if we do not love our fellow man whom we can see, how can we love God whom we have not seen? And James, in his, his epistle, he said, you know, if you have someone who's at your gate, at your door, and has a need, and you say, God bless you, go in peace, but do nothing to resolve the need, how can the love of God dwell in your heart? And that was the rich man's sin. He had no love of God or for his fellow man in his heart, and that's why he ended up in Hades. And so Abraham says to him, besides this, between us there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. No doubt there were a lot of evangelists in hell. I mean, you, you're sort of there. You recognize the ultimate end and the ultimate reality. But there's nothing to be done about it at that point. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. And interestingly, of course, as we all know, one named Lazarus did rise from the dead. I don't know that it was this same person, but Jesus' friend Lazarus rose from the dead in that very dramatic scene in John chapter 11. And in the very next chapter, chapter 12, the Pharisees are plotting to put him to death because of all the attention that it garnered and how people were coming to Christ as a result. And of course, we know the greatest resurrection of all, the resurrection of our Lord. Many, many people aware of that resurrection who chose not to believe. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So your faith needs to rest on the word of God, just as I was saying earlier. Our, our study of the Bible, our look into Genesis through Revelation, what it means. That's where our faith comes from. But beyond that, faith is action. James said, there's a lot of demons who believe. Like I said, a lot of evangelists in hell. It's, faith is belief put to action. And I'm just saying here this morning, as the final point of this teaching is where are you investing for the future? Are you putting into your heavenly account gold, silver, and precious stones? Are you more focused on life in the here and now? Because that's the key question. That is the key question that today's passage gets us to. Now, I have to tell you, as I studied this out, I struggled because 
being frank with you, I don't always think forward. A lot of times I'm thinking about tomorrow and today. But the point being is I think this is and can be a turning point for each one of us with regards to our frame of reference, our priorities, and how we are using what God has given us in this life to build for the next. We're going to take our offering now. And, um, you know, it just sort of happened that way. I didn't plan this service. Um, <laughs> um, I will say this, though, as, as we're getting ready to take the offering, you know, there's a lot of different opinions about how people, Christians, are to give. There are people who hold to the tithe, the 10%, you know, and the tithe is taught from before the law, through the law, through the prophets and the New Testament, and so on. Um, but there's also this passage of scripture in Second Corinthians 9 that I think is a wonderful um, clarifier for me. It says, if you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. And God loves a cheerful giver. So whatever you give, whatever amount it is, give it cheerfully. In fact, the, the Greek word there is hilaros, from which we get our English term Hilarious. He loves you to be just crazy cheerful in your giving. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have here to give. May you bless it to the expansion and the glorification of your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen.